Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone, welcome to LawPod. It's Dr. Andre Godden here um, from the School of Law and I'm here with Professor Bryce Dixon, who's our Emeritus Professor of International Comparative Law. And we're going to speak about um, his recent lecture that he gave, which was the Stephen Livingstone lecture just before Christmas, which was titled The Problem with Human Rights. So just to start off then, Bryce, um, just wanted to ask why you chose this as your topic for the Stephen Livingstone lecture. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for the introduction. I chose this topic because um, Stephen Livingstone, who died, what, um, 14 years ago, um, was a very strong advocate for human rights, but he was also a critical legal scholar. That is, he was somebody who looked at the fundamental structure of the legal system and tried to work out what assumptions it was built upon uh, and how it might be changed for the better. And human rights law, I think, presents a good challenge from that point of view. It has grown up in a certain way that has led many people to adopt certain positions. But in fact, it has grown up in an accidental way. It's built on certain assumptions and developments that don't necessarily hold true today. And the point of my lecture was to try to raise some questions about whether the fundamentals of our, our approach to human rights law need to be rethought. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I found very interesting was the first part, actually, of the, of the lecture, which was uh, looked at the philosophical problems with human rights. Um, so you mentioned a few of those. You look at the um, utilitarian approach, the feminist approach, the Marxist approach, and the critical, critical legal approach as well. Um, all theories and uh, concepts that I'm quite familiar with. I just wanted to get you to get your opinion on this. Um, some of those theories all accept the utilitarian approach, you could argue, are normative human rights theories in terms of they're, they're built on value judgments and concepts which not everyone necessarily would share. So you and I have spoken about this recently. Um, is there or has there ever been a true positivist account of human rights, which is not built on any particular philosophical viewpoint? I don't know of any legal philosopher who has explicitly espoused that particular approach to human rights. The reality, of course, is that many practicing lawyers and and indeed academics um, take it for granted that... that, um, what is a human right is what the law says a human right is, um, which doesn't necessarily follow. Uh, Most of us, certainly most practitioners, solicitors and barristers and judges, would would look to what the law says before they determine what a human right is, which I guess is a a pretty positivist positivist approach. Um, 
So there's much to be said for that in the real world because it, it prevents us from getting bogged down in theoretical and philosophical discussions which may lead nowhere or which may lead to a, a clash that, that can't be resolved. So the point of my talk was not to say that um, we should decide all human rights issues in accordance with a certain philosophical tradition. It was rather to say that whatever philosophical tradition people may espouse when talking about human rights, um, we need to focus on um, the, the practical implementation of our thinking about human rights, whatever the fundamentals are, because at the end of the day, it's the suffering of people that needs to be dealt with, you know, not not some... Um, cosy or or um, highly structured uh, framework in one's mind. Mm -hmm. That actually brings me to actually the end of your speech, towards the end of your speech. So you basically made that kind, made that argument that we shouldn't get bogged down too much, as you say, in, in terms of theories, the theoretical backdrop to human rights. We should focus more on uh, implementation of, of human rights, practical, the practical realities. Um, and you list seven. Uh, seven issues that need to be focused on, move, on moving forward. I just wanted to ask, is it is it really possible, is it really feasible to focus on moving forward in terms of like looking at issues of implementation of human rights, which we'll come to in a second, certain issues which, which still need to be addressed? Is it possible to make progress on those fronts in the absence of a consensus as to what human rights actually are? Yes, I think it is. Um, I was at pains in the talk to try to say that the huge, hugely positive things that have happened in human rights law, mainly since the 1940s with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, and then the Council of Europe Convention, the European Convention on Human Rights from 1950, all of that and the many, many other treaties that have been agreed on human rights issues since then have achieved a tremendous amount in, in terms of improving the the lot of ordinary people all over the world and in particular it's helped to protect them against their own governments that was the main reason why the universal declaration was agreed in the first place what i'm saying is that without um, ditching any of, of those developments we can build upon them by expanding the reach of a human rights approach to law and in particular i think we should expand it into domestic legal systems dealing with what common lawyers call civil law and criminal law that is you know disputes between private individuals disputes over torts and contracts etc and disputes between individuals and the state criminal law i would like to see human rights thinking infuse those areas of domestic law rather than be just an international law concept Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned in your speech um, about the need to infuse human rights values more um, into into the national apparatus as well. Um, are those the type of things that really can be litigated, values? They can be litigated uh, in the sense that they can be borne in mind when legislation is drafted, making something a crime or indicating what the penalty should be for a crime or what the remedy should be for a civil wrong. So to take an example, um, when, a, uh, when a person is assaulted in the street, the perpetrator can be convicted of 
one of a number of different crimes of assault, of wounding, causing grievous bodily harm, etc. And a penalty can be imposed against that person. Um, the, the criminal law, both in Northern Ireland and elsewhere in the UK, requires a judge that is dealing with that criminal matter to decide whether any compensation should be awarded to the victim. In the vast majority of instances, no compensation is given. In fact, in the, in, in a lot of cases, the, the very possibility of compensation isn't expressly um, discussed by the judge in the case. So the, the victim never has a chance really to argue for compensation. My position would be that the law should be more forceful in requiring judges to explicitly say whether the victim is deserving of compensation because his or her human right not to be ill-treated has been breached. Uh, now, that's a rather unconventional approach because, as, as you know all too well, Andrew, um, when human rights people talk about ill-treatment or torture, they inevitably think about torture by the state or ill-treatment by the state or some state authority, the police or the army or whoever, when in fact... You know, when somebody puts a bomb in a in a crowded place, or or shoots somebody, or commits violence within the home, those are instances of ill treatment against individuals. And I think the victims of that kind of ill treatment are human rights victims. Yeah. So would it be the same kind of thing? Um, basically, you're arguing could could you say that? human rights, human rights violations could be taken into account as like an aggravating factor, like whenever someone's being sentenced, for example. So could that be where human rights values could come in as well, rather than just the issue of compensation in terms of um, maybe making the sentence harsher, maybe because it was directed at a particular group, for example, like LGBT community, for example. So could the whole human rights argument be brought in as a basically an aggravating factor in that kind of sense? Yes, I think, I'm not sure I would call it an aggravating factor. I, I, um, I think I would rather say that it's a, a factor that can be taken into account when deciding what remedy should be made available to the, uh, the victim. Um, <clears throat> in, in, the, in the debates that are going on at the moment uh, around hate crime and how it should be reformed in Northern Ireland, as, as you probably know, there is a, a big debate about whether we should have special crimes called hate crimes, so-called aggravated offences, and the person will be prosecuted for, you know, racism, basically, or, or sectarianism, um, or whether instead we should just have the ordinary crimes of assault and theft and so forth, but in instances where they have been committed with a racist or sectarian motive, um, then the, the sentence can be enhanced in, 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 in the way that I think that you were suggesting in your question. I'm I'm saying that in instances where somebody has suffered a wrong, either in the civil law or the criminal law, if that wrong breaches the individual's rights, their right to privacy, for example, their right to free speech, then whatever remedy they get, the fact that their rights have been breached, their human rights, should be taken into account. You also mentioned in your in your speech, which I found very very interesting, um, the whole issue of poverty, human rights, and poverty, human rights, and international development, which I take to mean human rights in the developing world, human rights perhaps in the global south. Um, 
so I, I find that very interesting that's my own that's my own field um, so I would regard the whole issue of human rights in development and the, the third world if you want to use that that phrase as really the crucible of human rights thought today and they say that you know the crucible is an environment where lots of different elements are mixed mixed together they're put under tremendous strain and pressure and by the end of it um, you could result whenever the whole crucible whenever the whole process is over you can end up with something better with something new with something that's different because things have been tested to their limits and i think as i say in this this field um this is where really human rights are being tested to their limits so it um basically touches on a lot of issues that that uh, you've that you've referred to uh, in your speech such as um, you know the lack of philosophical consensus as to what human rights actually are um the lack of enforcement enforcement gaps in terms of uh, being able to enforce your human rights and the whole issue of non-state actors non-state agencies so um i just want to get your thoughts on that topic just broadly just uh what what because uh, you also mentioned the sustainable development goals as well um obviously we're in the last the last decade now of the 2030 agenda so i just want to get your thoughts on on how you think what what the state of play is with regard to human rights in this particular this particular field Yes, <clears throat> well, I think you've put your finger on what is at the at the heart of the the, the problem at the moment. <clears throat> this idea that um, the the law on human rights has become very sophisticated in many respects, and uh, the the liberal elite, of which we are probably a part, <laughs> um, take great delight and and enjoyment out of debating the finer points of discrimination law or whatever, when in fact around the world. You know, countless millions of people are are suffering. Uh, they're suffering from poverty, from inequality, from violence, from neglect, from lack of opportunity, from discrimination, etc. And it's that it's that great um, uh, feature of society, uh, of world society, that is making people, ordinary people rather suspicious of the concept of human rights. If, if human rights can't solve the problem of global poverty, of, of infant mortality, of um, you know, violence against women, etc., then what good is the concept of human rights? That's, that's the basic um, problem, which I, th I think you've kind of touched upon there. So in relation to the, the work being done on, on uh, development around the world, uh, the the reform of the, the world's sort of economic structure. Um, I think we, if, if we seriously adopt a human rights approach to those sorts of issues, if basically, I mean, it, it sounds simplistic, but if we basically treat people decently, mm. um, then you know, we're on the right road to hopefully making the world a better place mm. and not an exploitative place, which it seems to have become over the last few decades. Mm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the human rights-based approach or the human rights approach to development. That was basically what my thesis was on, my doctoral thesis. Um, and I, when writing the thesis, basically uh, encountered a lot of different issues with the framework itself, the whole issue, the whole concept of rights-compliant programming and things like that, the human rights-based approach in general. Um, so one of the one of the main issues which I encountered was the whole the, the rise of charities. NGOs that are actually doing a lot of the development work in extremely poor countries. Um, does that not bring up, because it certainly did for me, the whole issue of non-state actors and the ways in which they can be 
brought to account for human rights violations. I mean, there was one infamous case, which is the basically referred to the Chad Cameroon Pipeline Project, which was put in place, and the World Bank um, basically funded that um, for, for quite a while. But there were human rights groups which basically argued that there were insufficient human rights protections built into this pipeline project, this oil project, with the result that indigenous populations would be basically forcibly removed and their environment would be would be um, would be ruined because of the because of the project. And also there were issues with the Chad and Cameroonian governments themselves. Um, so eventually uh, the project got underway and then money started going missing because the governments were basically siphoning off money. People's rights were also being infringed as well. So eventually the World Bank admitted defeat and pulled out of the project. So that's one infamous example of oil companies, ExxonMobil, others, um, basically putting in place these large, very, very large industrial kind of projects in these countries without giving uh, human rights guarantees. Um, and nothing has really been done to bring those you know, uh, companies to account. So... Uh, is that a major issue? I think it, for me it is certainly a major issue in terms of human rights, the human rights system today, particularly in these countries, that uh, there is no effective mechanism for holding these countries to account. I mean, even the, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, as we know, aren't binding. Um, yes, <clears throat> very much I, I agree with, with, with that. Um, you, you mentioned um, the, the Ruggie principles and, and business and human rights. That is one area where... Progress is being made in extending what has current, what has what has traditionally been a state-focused approach to human rights, extending it to the private sector, and holding the large corporations to account for uh, a lot of their exploitative work uh, around the world, uh, destroying habitats, um, uh, uh, unduly um, influencing the, the lives and, and negatively influencing the lives of indigenous peoples and and others and exploiting the workers. A lot of that's going on. And the challenge is to develop legal systems, both nationally and internationally, that can hold those private entities to account. And it is beginning to happen, as, you, as you've mm -hmm. indicated. And there are other examples one could cite uh, of companies being sued in, in Western countries for bad things they have done in, in uh, developing countries. So um, the, the more we extend the... Um, the liability of non-state actors, not just corporations, but also um, uh, non-state you know, non armed groups, mm -hmm. ISIS, um, the... Boko uh, Haram and countries like... Boko Haram, the IRA, yeah. the, the UVF in our own context. Mm -hmm. The more we can try and uh, ensure that those groups are held to account for their human rights abuses, the, the better... Um, because that's infusing a human rights value-based approach to to the law. But I would I would move it further, as I say in my lecture, the whole field of domestic violence, violence, which you know until pretty recently was a a no-go area for human rights law because it was deemed to be too too kind of personal and internal, and what what happens in the family stays in the family. That kind of approach to things, or what happens in the home stays in the home. Thankfully, the home is being opened out now. Uh, legally speaking, to a human rights approach. And I would like to see that happen more often. Now, it does mean, of course, that as well as holding individuals to account for the way they mistreat their partners or their their, their uh, children, um, 
so too the state and its agencies should be required by law to take better steps to protect people, to set up refuges for um, uh, abused women and, and children, to require the perpetrator of the violence to leave the home rather than the victim of the violence to leave the home. You know, a much more human rights focused approach, a decency, a fairness approach to these issues can achieve a great deal. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. So, I mean, if you were to extend that again to developing countries, particularly like in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where their customs, marital customs and family customs would be uh, significantly different from, from what we would recognise in the West. Um, for me, that, that brings up the whole, the whole concept of um, progressive realisation, uh, the whole doctrine of progressive realisation. So you think of general comment number three, um, which basically says that human rights can be taken forward uh, you know, in a progressive way. So you don't have to um, take forward every human right whenever you're implementing a development project, for example, in a certain country. You don't have to have a mind to furthering every human right at the same time. So um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I mean, is it not the case that the whole doctrine of progressive realisation, trying to bring those kinds of rights, like rights you know, to protection from domestic violence and so on, um, taking those forward over a period of time rather than immediately, does that not undermine uh, the whole concept of the indivisibility and the interdependence of human rights? Because you basically are separating them at that stage. I don't think it does. I mean, in a, in a utopia, every state in the world would tomorrow be able to deliver full protection of social and economic rights. But we don't live in that world and lots of countries are very poorly resourced to achieve the sorts of rights protection that Western countries and, and other developed countries can achieve. So, faute de mieux, if you like, for, for lack of anything better, we have to persist with the progressive realisation approach. I would add to that by adopting the... Uh, the, the approach whereby there's a core element to every social and economic right. So you do require a minimum of protection to be granted by all states. Like the do no harm principle, for example. The do no harm principle. Mm. Uh, the uh, certain fundamentals like right to water and right mm. to food, uh, right to education and, and some kind of security, mm. protection from the elements. Um, I think we're, ex we're entitled to expect in this world every government to provide that for its own people mm. and if it takes international aid to do that then so be it as you'll know the the um, preambles to the international treaties on these issues require states to help other states mm -hmm. to protect their citizens yeah. it's a collective effort it should be a collective effort on the part of the the international community mm -hmm. we shouldn't put all the responsibility on a government which has very few resources at its disposal but nor should we permit such governments to squander their resources, either through corruption, of course, and corruption mm. is a big human rights issue, but also through the, the, the um, building up of armaments and of, of vanity projects by their leaders, that kind of stuff. All of that needs to be very highly uh, policed and measures taken against the governments by other states if, if they're indulging in those sorts of activities. Mm. That's a very practical and uh, well-reasoned uh, approach to the, the whole issue of progressive realisation um, and it has been mirrored by certain other authors that I encountered when I was doing my research. Um, overall, though, the impression that I get is not enough um, human rights scholars and activists and advocates would adopt that view. Um, a lot of them still promise 
the heavens. Basically, a lot of them still promise things in these, you know, extremely, extremely troubled and, and complicated uh, countries uh, where people are really, really on the verge of life and death itself. They still insist that countries need to uh, have a view to everything. They need to take a broad approach. They need to try and do as much as they, well, even more than they possibly can because, like you say, they're relying on the help of other countries as well. Um, so just uh, makes me think about the comment that Eric Posner made and he basically argued that that the human rights community needs to learn from development economists because development economists like the human rights sector, the human rights movement has largely failed to accomplish everything that it wanted but he argues that development economists have learned to become more humble through their defeats, they've learned to uh, have more humility when, when taking forward their projects and trying to advocate for change and he basically argues that more and more uh, that he basically argues that more and more the human rights community needs to needs to be more humble they need to accept that they can't do everything do you think we're at that stage you know whenever you look at authors like posner hopgood samuel moyne more in the critical fringe do you think that we're starting to become more of a realization that uh not everything can be achieved through human rights and that more maybe more of a uh, a more reasoned, practical approach, like you just outlined, um, is more necessary, particularly in these countries? Yes, I think things are changing uh, to some extent. But I, I, I repeat that I'm not in favour of shifting focus entirely away from the, the the approach that's been adopted up to now. And not I don't want um, uh, the obligations on states to be diluted mm. in any kind of way when it comes to civil and political rights. Sure. This old canard that, you know, you um, a government either has to give people food or give them free speech. Mm -hmm. There isn't a choice. They, they can get both. Yeah. There's no, no requirement to make a choice there. And that's why pressure must be put on countries, you know, such as China. China is a country which is an economic giant, but still denies free speech to its citizens mm. and and prevents political organization. So, you know, the rest of the world, the democratic world, needs to continue to put pressure on China, economic pressure if required, to to bring it to its senses in, in that regard. But generally, yes, I think the implication of your question is that human rights teachers, human rights practitioners, human rights thinkers need to shift their focus away slightly from the individual to the community and the society in order to improve the, the, the health of those groups. You know, by, by health, I mean the, the well-being, the happiness, and, and not just uh, physical health of those groups. In that way, we can produce a better world, which I think was in the minds of the, the drafters of the Universal Declaration back in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. um, one final issue on, on this topic um, but something that I find fascinating is the whole issue of, and it's actually one of the few things that you didn't cover in your in your speech, which is the issue of extraterritorial obligations, um, so or transnational obligations. So there are those who who would argue that human rights are essentially a state based uh, system that they begin and end at national frontiers and national borders, uh, and while I would argue that human rights human rights thought and human rights human rights practice has evolved to see human rights as extending beyond borders. So if you take the issue of, of developing countries, you can have a country like the UK, like DFID, Department for International Development, um, who would fund certain groups or certain charities 
um, to carry out like a water infrastructure project, for example, in in uh, like a sub, like a sub-Saharan African country. Uh, they would also fund the government of that country as well to carry out certain projects on its behalf. Um, should human rights in that context? Well, the question is, how would you really enforce human rights? How would someone in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, uh, enforce their human rights against the country that's funding these projects? Maybe the country has directed certain organisations to carry out the project in a certain way, which which doesn't honour human rights. Do human rights extend beyond beyond the border in that sense? I think they do. I mean, there, there are two ways in which such companies can be held to account either domestically in the country where they're operating, but as, as you imply, I think there will often be a problem there because that country will not have the resources, the, 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 the developed legal system in order to achieve that. But the other way of holding them to account is to bring them to court in the, in the country uh, where they're based, you know, usually a Western liberal democracy. And the government itself, itself if, if DFID or any other government department is out there in the developed, the, the developing world breaching human rights, then it ought to be held to account for that. And I am in favour, to, to take up your point about extraterritoriality, of holding companies, British companies in, in our case, or Irish companies, holding them to account under the European Convention on Human Rights for things that they are doing outside of their own countries. Mm -hmm. I, I think the ECHR should travel with government representatives as they go abroad, be they you know, law enforcers like soldiers or be they officials and other um, workers from, from government departments. As you know, the, the law, the international law, is developing in that respect and various armed forces are being held to account for things that they do abroad, but the, the, the jurisdictional niceties have not yet been sort of agreed universally. So it's, we're still in a, in a developing stage in that respect. But uh, I foresee that in the next 20 or 30 years, that, that approach, that human rights approach to what governments do elsewhere in the world will become embedded. Mm. I can see that even though a lot of countries today, particularly in the West, would still um, use the fact that the international treaties, most of them anyway, um, do have jurisdictional clauses in them. So, uh, like, you know, the ICCPR only really applies to protecting, well, only really says that governments are obliged to protect people within within their jurisdiction, within their territory. Yeah. And there are whole issues uh, surrounding the definition of jurisdiction and territory, which we could spend all day about. Um, but that's, as I say, um, a very interesting topic. So if we could just move from the international sphere then and bring it closer to home. Um, so literally, I do want to bring bring rights home uh, to, to Northern Ireland at, uh, at this stage. Um, you mentioned at the end of your speech about um, you know the, the fact that perhaps one grand bill of rights for, for Northern Ireland might not be the way to, to take the whole human rights agenda forward in the future, that it could actually be taken forward through separate pieces of legislation and separate initiatives. just wanted to get your thoughts on the new decade, new approach um, framework that's just been agreed. I think the, the new settlement for Northern Ireland that was agreed earlier in 2020 is um, is, is great news. Um, and on the Bill of Rights issue, it, it does provide for a committee to be set up to look at whether um, there are rights particular to Northern Ireland, by which I think they mean particular to the conflict in Northern Ireland, that still need to be embedded in our law. 
that, that a committee should look at those and make recommendations as to what should be in that Bill of Rights. I'm in favour of that approach. What I'm not any longer in favour of, I used to be, but I'm not really a big supporter now of the idea that all the rights that need to be protected in Northern Ireland should go into one single document called the Bill of Rights. Um, I think that's that's a triumph of, of form over substance. It's 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 diverting our energies into a a change of form when what we really require is a change of substance, especially on on very particular issues that have not yet been resolved. And the prime one in Northern Ireland, I think, is the right to integrated education. I maintain that our failure to educate our children together is going to be a recipe for almost perpetual conflict in this place until we get that right. And I think parents who want their kids to be educated not in a Catholic school or by default in what is a Protestant school, they have the right should have the right to have their, edu- their their children educated in an integrated way. Um, the, uh, the, the Irish language needs to be better protected in Northern Ireland. We've recently had developments on the uh, same-sex marriage issue and on the abortion issue. I think those are good developments. Uh, they have plugged the gap in our human rights protection that, that was a serious one. And there are a number of other comparatively minor issues that could be dealt with through specific pieces of legislation in our assembly in Northern Ireland without us having to wait for a, a full-scale Bill of Rights to come down the line. We, we we don't need that. We need better protection of rights, but we don't need this this um, uh, big single document called a Bill of Rights. Mm. I think the whole, the whole debate around the Bill of Rights really brings up the whole uh, issue of... of really the, the sectarian divide in Northern Ireland um, because it has been impossible to agree a way forward on this issue. You would have mostly the nationalist community arguing for it and to a certain extent elements of the unionist community being sceptical about it. So I was just wondering if if you think that more work needs to be done to build more awareness of, of human rights in Northern Ireland across across the community uh, to make it more more understandable, more more acceptable um, so the people, more people across the community can rely on it and realise that it's for them. It's not just for one side over the other. Yes, I mean, I think that will probably happen anyway, given the, the political circumstances we're in, what with what with Brexit, what with uh, Sinn Féin now being very prominent in, in the south of Ireland. Uh, it will mean that people in the unionist community in Northern Ireland will become, become more aware than ever of the importance of a, of a good human rights system because they may eventually be a minority in a united Ireland and you know they will deserve protections there and require protections in the same way that nationalists required protection in Northern Ireland when it was a, a state on its own so that's a whole big topic perhaps <laughs> for, for another podcast <laughs> yeah. but a very interesting one yeah one final issue um, before we wrap up anybody who knows me knows that I'm a, a very 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 big boxing fan it's a my favorite favorite sport um, there's an issue that's been going on for the, the past few years, which is that um, Northern Ireland does not have its own boxing association. Um, so basically, if you're from Northern Ireland, even though under the Belfast Agreement, Good Friday Agreement, you have the right to you know be British, Irish, or both, you can't actually compete for your national country. You can't compete for Team GB, for example, in the Olympics, because the Northern Ireland boxing setup comes under the Irish Boxing Association. So... Um, 
that's an issue that's coming up, just the whole issue of sport in general, because it's not just boxing, there's other sports as well, where people, young people could compete for you know, certain teams, but they will have to compete for Ireland. They will not be able to compete for Northern Ireland or for Team GB uh, in international competitions, for example. Do you think that that's an issue that could be, do you think that's, that's one of the grey areas, one of the gaps that's been left over really from from the 1998, basically, that that's one of those areas that, that hasn't really been recognised, that people should have the right to express their national identity through sport, um, whereas in, you know, in certain contexts now they, they don't have the ability to do that. Do you think that's something that could be maybe looked at, perhaps from a human rights perspective going forward, or at least Section 75 of the Northern Ireland Act? I wasn't aware of that particular anomaly, mm-hmm. certainly not as regards the, the, the boxing yeah, world. Few, uh, few people are, unfortunately. very interesting. <laughs> um, I'm not so sure it's a human rights issue, but mm. it, it probably is a Good Friday Agreement issue, as, sure. as you suggest, because if you're, if you're claiming your right to be British rather than Irish, but you're not getting um, access to the, the opportunities to play your sport or, or represent your country in your mm-hmm. sport in the way that other British people would, then that seems to be anomalous. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be an issue for the, the boxing authorities to sort out, I would yeah. have thought, uh, rather than for a human rights court. Yeah. Well, I would... I would the only reason I, I bring up the human, human rights issue is that uh, it's another... Um, sensitive topic. It's another topic that the parties have unable, unable to reach an agreement on. So maybe it's time to go above their heads almost uh, and uh, deal with it at a higher level. But um, that's just my little pet peeve there that I just wanted to put in. Um, well, thanks very much, Bryce. Thank you very much for sitting down to talk to me. It's always a pleasure. You're welcome. Um, Thank you. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Um, if anybody wants any more information on, on the topics that we've covered, um, you can check out Bryce's Bryce's lecture, it's in the Northern Ireland Legal Quarterly, which is available online. And you can also check out the show notes, which are also going to be online. Thank you so much for listening to LawPod. You've been listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod and you can learn more about us at lawpod.org. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This was Lockwood.